This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Peter Clotty, and here's what's coming up. As one former uh, UN envoy told me once, it basically, he says, comes down to the, the flag and the postage stamp. And what he meant is each side wants sovereignty or nothing. So in that sense, it's kind of a zero-sum situation. That's William Lawrence, Professor of International Affairs at the American University in Washington, on the challenges of finding a long-term solution in Western Sahara. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Peter Clote. Here's what's coming up. That's all this and more coming up on African News Tonight. Burkina Faso has been hit by a second military coup in eight months as the country struggles for stability as it's been ravaged by terror attacks and poverty. The takeover on Friday has been followed by protests outside the embassy of France, the former colonial power, and some support for Russia, which has provided mercenaries to the government. But they have been accused of brutal attacks that have included civilian casualties. Joining me live with an update on the situation is reporter Henry Wilkins from the Burkinabi capital, Ouagadougou. Hello, Harry. Hello, Hello thanks for having me. Wonderful. So, Harry, let's get into it. Tell me about the overview of the coup that occurred on Friday. Yeah, so the new junta appeared on the uh, national broadcast on Friday night to, to announce the coup, and... Uh, since then, there's, you know, there's been a lot of trouble in the streets. There were soldiers on the streets on uh, on Saturday. There were protesters on the street on the streets on Sunday who attacked the uh, the French embassy. Um, today is a lot calmer. There's people are moving around the city. There's uh, been reports of sporadic protests popping up around Ouagadougou, the capital, um, but certainly nothing compared to. Uh, the last three days. So it does seem like the uh, the new junta has got a handle on um, power in the country now. This is a second coup in eight months. What's uh, the latest development? Are the Bokinabis embracing the 34-year-old uh, Traore who carried out the coup? Yeah, I mean, most of the people that I've spoken to so far today have said that they are pleased that there's been a change at the top. Um, I think, you know, they, they had a democratic government for uh, around six years until January, and then a military coup in January brought to the power of military junta. Neither of those previous governments have been able to sort out the security problems that uh, have been caused by the Kina Faso seven-year war with militants linked to Islamic State and al-Qaeda. So um, there is you know, a lot riding on this on this new junta as far as people are concerned, although they do seem to think that a, that a change was necessary and hope that this new junta will be able to sort out the security problems. Now, ECOWAS representatives are expected in Ouagadougou, um, you know, in the next few hours or days, possibly. What are their expectations? What are they coming to do? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a really good question. They the, the previous junta 
they they condemned uh, the the military takeover. They put pressure on them to agree to a two-year transition period, um, where whereby in theory the security in the country would be sorted out by, and constitutional normality would return, democracy would would return. It's likely that. Probably the, the delegation coming from ECOWAS will try to do the same with the, uh, with the new junta. However, the, the junta themselves have, have already said they want hard and fast um, uh, changes to, to, to sort out the insecurity. They've also implied that they could turn towards Russia as an international uh, partner to help them with with security as well. So it seems like it's possible the, the new junta could be turning away from uh, the, the regional community and perhaps the wider international community as well. Where do Bokinabes go from here, Henry Wilkins? I mean, again, that's, that's a great question. I mean, every, everybody here obviously hopes that there will be a solution to the, to the security problems. You know, the government controls only around 60% of the, of the national territory at the moment. Um, the number of attacks which are occurring by, against, uh, by militants against civilians and against the, the army uh, are still happening on, a, on an almost daily basis. Um, the hope is that, that this junta will take uh, things in a very different direction. But certainly some of the analysts from, from the international community are doubtful that this uh, this will happen. Uh, so yeah, I mean certainly, even if, uh, if if changes do begin to to happen, they will uh, occur over a very slow uh, period. So I think whatever happens at this stage, the Faso is still in for a very long and hard fight. Before you go, Henry, um, what is the latest news about the ousted military? Leader, there are reports he's out of the country. What can you say briefly before you go? Yeah, so he was. Next video is reported that he said to to neighbor in Togo, who's in Lomé at the moment. Uh, there was a video which was reportedly filmed yesterday, but only did the did the rounds on social media today, uh, where he uh, officially resigned and said that. Uh, uh, he wished the best for the for the new junta. Um, he requested that uh, the, the members of the military who had supported him not be punished by the new junta. But it, it certainly seems that he is very much out of the picture now. Thank you very much. That was Henry Wilkins from the Bokinabi capital, Ouagadougou. Somalia's long-running battle against the extremist group Al-Shabaab has led to three car bombings today that killed at least 20 people and wounded 36 others. Al-Shabaab claimed responsibility for the attacks in the central Somali town of Beledouin, which has been the center of a recent local community mobilization against the Islamist militant group. Joining me now in the studio is Harun Maruf of VOA Somali Service. Hello, Harun. So, tell us about the massive explosions in Beledouin town today and why Beledouin in the first place. Why Beledouin? Probably Beledouin, as you mentioned, it has been the center of locally mobilized resistance to Al-Shabaab. The Somali government, with the support of African Union forces, have been trying to subjugate and 
degrade Al-Shabaab for many years. Uh, but the support from locals was not forthcoming all the time because people did not have entirely trust in the government. For instance, if they reported Al-Shabaab, they were fearing repercussions from Al-Shabaab. And the government forces and African Union forces were going to the countryside and occupying and liberating areas, but they were not staying in these areas. So that was compromising if the locals were to support the government. Mm. That has uh, appears to have changed last month when local forces, clan militias, uh, mobilized themselves and supported the government in liberating more than 40 villages. And uh, they have pushed al-Shabaab from fast areas. It was expected al-Shabaab was going to retaliate. Mm. Al-Shabaab spokesman Ali Dere directly threatened clans that al-Shabaab is going to attack them. So it was expected that they were going to attack, and this was the result. They carried out three massive attacks, specifically targeting where the officials and the local government uh, service workers uh, are based. And they killed a number of people, including a regional minister, a deputy governor, and a number of other civilians. Hmm. So uh, the Somali government has announced the killing of a prominent al Shabab leader. Who is this official? This official's name is Abdullahi Nadir. Uh, he's also known as Abdullahi Yere. He's one of the co-founders of Al Shabab. He's a veteran jihadist. There were rumors and confirmed reports that he was also the link between Al Shabab and Boko Haram. That was never substantiated, but it indicates he had some external experience as well. Uh, Abdullahi Yere has held multiple posts within the organization. He was the head of finance. The head of uh, da'wah, da'wah means preaching and spreading uh, al-Shabaab's ideology in Somalia. He was also the um, the head of the media department. One of al-Shabaab's most uh, savvy departments is the media, and they produce these uh, highly sophisticated uh, videos that attract youngsters into the group. So he was original, uh, one of the original people to head this department. So he's very well Does that give the government a little leg room to operate, and it's a massive blow to al-Shabaab, if you may? Uh, that's very interesting question. The United States and Somali government have been targeting al-Shabaab leaders for a long time, uh, more than 10 years. Uh, the former leader of al-Shabaab, Ahmed Abdelgudana, was killed. A number of other high-profile individuals were killed along the way. But Al-Shabaab has been very resilient and they were able to replace all these key leaders. The question is, is there going to be a sustained military operations Al-Shabaab? Because when you pressure Al-Shabaab, they withdraw. Now, before we go, uh, Harun, what what are officials of the government saying about the strategy they've launched against Al-Shabaab? And will this strategy be successful and sustainable? Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, the new president of Somalia, came up with this new strategy. He said, previously we have been focusing on degrading Al-Shabaab and containing them within Somalia. So he came up with other dimensions to face Al-Shabaab, ideological approach, economical approach, social approach. He said he's going to mobilize community leaders, Muslim scholars, uh, and also 
the business community so that they can stop paying Al-Shabaab because a lot of businesses are paying Al-Shabaab because they're scared Al-Shabaab is going to blow up their businesses. So uh, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed just yesterday, he was saying, if you stop paying Al-Shabaab, they will not be able to maintain and finance their explosives. So this new strategy, uh, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed has been very lucky. Briefly, he was a president. He was not getting a lot of support from the Kalanis. Now it appears the Kalanis and local people are supporting him. The question is, is he going to capitalize and is he going to put the pressure that's required uh, in putting Al-Shabaab so that Al-Shabaab can leave the countryside? Al-Shabaab lost most of the major towns in Somalia, but they have been controlling and uh, running around in the countryside. So that is the question whether he can uh, minimize the threat and also uh, make the best of the international community support, including the United States, which, by the way, a few minutes ago confirmed that uh, an al-Shabaab leader has been killed in southern Somalia, although they did not name, but the government named it that to be Abdullah Thank you very much. That was Harun Maruf of the OA Somali Service. Ethiopia's Tigray rebels have said they are redrawing from parts of the neighboring Amhara region, which they entered shortly after renewed hostilities broke out with federal government forces in August. Fred Hatter reports from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. In a statement, the leadership of the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, described the move as a tactical redeployment of its forces and said it was necessary to counter an invasion from the north. The fresh fighting has seen Eritrea renew its involvement in the war on the side of Ethiopia's federal government. Last month, the Tigray forces said Eritrea had launched a full-scale offensive across the region's northern border. Accordingly, we have made geographical adjustments by withdrawing from Amhara areas we had entered in the direction of the south, the latest TPLF statement said. It added that the withdrawal had been underway for three days and could be reversed if pro-government forces made further attacks on the southern fronts. Separately, Tigray spokesperson Kitachu Reda said on Twitter that his region's forces had inflicted, quote, tens of thousands, end quote, of losses on pro-government units. VOA was unable to verify these claims. The areas affected by the fighting are mostly cut off from phone and internet access, and journalists are currently barred from travelling there. Ethiopia's federal government has remained tight-lipped amid the recent fighting and has not yet commented on the Tigray forces' latest statement. Eritrean forces fought alongside Ethiopia's federal forces when the Tigray conflict first broke out in November 2020, before they were both forced to withdraw in June 2021. Asmara's re-entry into the conflict has drawn international condemnation. Fred Harter, for VOA News, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. It's well known that extreme weather, droughts, floods and heat waves are affecting crop yields this year. The non-profit, as you know, so launched the Climate Inflation Initiative last week. Andrew Beher, CEO of As You Know, or as you saw, says the initiative is an education tool to help people understand how climate change negatively affects everyone, especially people living in Africa, where the supply chain is not as large as in Western countries. That's caused actually a great deal of the climate migrants, the people who are forced to leave their homes and, uh, and are now in refugee camps. The climate refugees are it's, it's a massive problem. The UN predicted this when they were writing the the IPCC 5 and earlier versions of it, you know, said that around this time, 
we would have about 100 million climate refugees. And a lot of that has to do with just the lack of food caused by these uh, these these climate induced weather events that are just wiping out the uh, the farms. Tell me a little bit more about your climate inflation initiative. How does it affect basic commodities like milk and bread in places like we've been talking about? So we see climate inflation as a bread and butter issue, literally. Not many people are talking about this is, is really why we started this. Most people are blaming inflation on all kinds of other things, on monetary policy, on obviously the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has caused a great deal of inflation, particularly the rise of gas prices. And then, of course, the oil companies gouging everyone at the pump. Uh, so those are definitely part of it. But we just haven't seen anyone really talking about the root cause, which is that crops, that, that commodities, raw commodities, cotton are just simply having, you know, just, just producing less. I mean, you look at the cotton harvest in Texas, and I think it's down going to be down 40% this year. So that's got to drive prices up. Pakistan, they provide a great deal of cotton to the world uh, markets, and those floods that are happening now are going to just completely have a very negative impact on crop yields. So these are things that I think people need to start to think about when they think about climate change, that this is the result. What can people do to try to reduce the effects of climate change on, you know, their monthly budgets trying to just get by? You know, there's been a whole movement. Uh, I don't know if you know what a victory garden is. During World War II, people started growing their own food. They, they turned their lawns into vegetable gardens and started sharing within their communities. Uh, that's been actually a pretty big movement that's been happening around the world. You don't want to water lawns. That's a waste of water. People can grow a ton of food if you have even a small patch of yard. So I would say grow your own food. I would also say buy locally, farmers markets, and also support regenerative agriculture. There is a way of, of growing food that actually makes the soil richer each at each harvest. This is using cover crops, uh, rotating fields, not using pesticides. As you sow is a nonprofit, we're a 501c3 that works directly engaging big corporations on a lot of these systemic issues. And we engaged General Mills back in 2017 about regenerative agriculture. And over the course of two years and, and working with their scientists, what they realized is that the industrial ag farms, when you have a climate superstorm, it washes away all the soil. But a regenerative ag farm, it actually retains the water and retains the soil. So in 2019, they signed a pledge that uh, said that their entire supply chain would only buy from regenerative ag. And when you ask them why, they say it's because we need a resilient supply chain. That is Andrew Behar, CEO of the nonprofit As You Saw. He was speaking with from Berkeley, California, with viewers Carol Van Dam. The French news agency says clashes erupted yesterday in Guinea during Independence Day celebrations. Hundreds of young people clashed with police along Rouge Le Prince Road connecting Conakry to its northern suburbs. One of the events organizers told AFP that the crowd had come only to celebrate 46 years of independence, but to honor what they called victims of repression that have often led to death. The wire service says organizers failed to calm a group of young people who wanted to barricade part of the route by burning tires. Local and social media reported that demonstrators set on fire a double-decker bus and a police vehicle. Residents in the Bambay to area said they had gunned fire for half an hour beginning at 7 p.m. Witnesses told AFP that turnout for official celebrations at the parliament building was low.
Moroccan Prime Minister Aziz Aknouche wants the international community to urge Algeria to allow the UN Refugee Commission to count and register Sawari refugees in Tendouf camps. He told the UN General Assembly that they are living in catastrophic human conditions. William Lawrence, Professor of International Affairs at the American University in Washington, explained the purpose of such a call to VOA senior analyst Mohamed El Shenawi. There are many purposes of it, and one is that Morocco has a decent claim here that the world needs to know how many Sahrawis are living in the camps and how many are not living in the camps as part of the overall censusing of the population that would lead to an eventual referendum if that ever happens, although Morocco's been blocking it for years now, or you know any other final disposition of these refugees. The problem with what he's saying is that it's Morocco that created the refugee problem in the first place by imposing its own sovereignty with the Green March in 1975, in which Moroccan citizens marched about 10 miles into the territory and Moroccan tanks kept rolling to take over the entire territory, which nearly doubles the size of Morocco. After the UN General Assembly had come down with a series of decisions, you know, basically allowing Sahrawis to vote on their future, either independence or attachment to the Moroccan state. And that's still the position of, you know, close to 90 countries in the world that Sahrawis have a right um, to decide their own future, even though Morocco has a right to point out that the condition of the people in the camps uh, should be a concern of the United Nations. Although, of course, Morocco doesn't support them. The, that population is supported by you know, Switzerland and Spain and Scandinavian countries and Algeria and others, uh, and have been for decades. I wouldn't call it catastrophic. Sometimes it's catastrophic uh, when there's flooding. You know, and I've been involved in humanitarian relief there when uh, when conditions get really bad. They're seriously affected by climate change and will continue to be so. But they're living there by choice and the Moroccans have excluded them by choice. So it's not exactly primarily Morocco's role here to point out how badly these refugees are living, but it is something that uh, should be concerned of everybody, including the United Nations. After this long period of no solution, is there a compromise that could bridge the gap between Algeria and Morocco on that conflict? Well, I am Many other experts on this issue have all kinds of ideas. You know, my, my favorite one, which both sides have projected, because I've told them at the highest levels, is uh, some kind of power sharing. I mean, if there ever is a political deal on the issue, um, some sort of arrangement where Morocco would be involved in the defense of the territory, maybe possibly their currency, you know, and, and, and the macroeconomic situation or some international affairs of the territory. But the Sahrawis would fully control their own own territory in terms of uh, services, and policies, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's some sort of power sharing deal you could have. I used to think it could be done under the aegis of the of the Maghreb Union and have the Maghreb Union and, and other states guaranteeing the, you know, the rights of the citizens and the, and the overall status of the state. But neither side likes that proposal, even though I think it's the best. Uh, as one former uh, UN envoy told me once, it basically, he says, comes down to the, the flag and the postage stamp. And what he meant is each side wants sovereignty or nothing. So in that sense, it's kind of a zero-sum situation. Um, I think both sides are trying to outlast the other. Of course, the Sahrawis removed the um, ceasefire in October of 2020 after the Moroccans had made incursions into their territory to go after peaceful protesters who were blocking the new Moroccan highway, which leads towards Africa, so of commercial importance to Morocco. And so we've been in this low-intensity conflict uh, since then, and there, there really isn't any moment 
momentum towards a solution at this time, although we can always hope for the best. That was William Lawrence, Professor of International Affairs at the American University in Washington. He was speaking with viewers, Senior Analyst Mohammed El Shanawi. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Peter Clote in Washington. For all latest development on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. And thank you again for tuning in and choosing the voice of America. Thank you.